Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, the writer says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? As we come to the last chapter in the book of Hebrews, we discover several things. Not only as we reflect on what we've already read in the last several chapters, the writer has laid out the case, remember that Jesus is superior. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than prophets. Jesus is better than the Old Testament. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than the Old Covenant. Jesus is better than the priesthood. Jesus is better than the tabernacle in the wilderness. And Jesus is better than the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. Why does the writer make this argument? Why is this such an important point to make? And you hopefully by now know the answer of why he's making that argument. Because there were people who were thinking about turning away from God and turning away from Christ and and turning away from grace and return back to the religious system which left them empty and hurt. The enemies of grace insisted that loyalty to Christ would mean That they would lose everything. They would lose their heritage. They would lose their friends. They would lose their material wealth. They would lose the temple. They would lose the sacrifices. They would lose the priesthood. And some of you, like I said when we began this study, may have grown up in a religious tradition where religious ritual and religious things were a part of who you were. Others of you who became a Christian, people attacked you. Your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your family, your friends. They basically said, you can't be a Christian. And you said, why not? Well, you're going to have to give up everything. You're going to have to give up everyone. You're going to have to give up the people you love and the people that you care about and the religious traditions that you grew up in. And part of the point that the passage is making and that this writer is making for the person who thinks that they lost so much when they came to faith in Christ or they chose to follow Jesus, this writer is going to make the argument that you didn't lose anything, but rather you gained everything. Satan attacks. His weapon? Lies. His target? our mind, our body, our will. And so the writer of Hebrews has spent 12 chapters, 12 chapters making the argument that the believer in the Lord Jesus loses nothing by trusting Christ. You lose nothing, you gain everything. And Satan and the enemies of grace Invite us to embrace religion as a suitable substitute for the real Jesus and for real grace and for a real relationship with the living God. And he invites us to turn our back on Christ's substitutes. 
he actually asks us to turn our backs on a religion that fails at being a relationship based on grace. So the chapter piles high the spiritual blessings at this very, very end. He's going to stack them one on top of the other. Even if we lose temporal things, we get eternal things. Even if we lose friends, we have a whole new family, the body of Christ. Even if we lose the temporal, the passing, the pleasures of the world, we can say with Paul the Apostle, with all of our hearts, that we're prepared to lose everything in this world to have everything in the next world. And so the writer of Hebrews is staking his entire life and everything he's written on Jesus. And that's exactly what I've done. I've staked everything, everything on what the Bible has to say about Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to focus on our spiritual fellowship of love in verses 1 through 4. Our spiritual treasures that we have in Christ in verses 5 and 6. Our spiritual nourishment that we have in verses 7 through 10. The writer is going to leave us with a few words about love in verses 1 through 6. About leaders in verse 7. And then again in verse 17 through 19 and 22 through 25. So he's going to wind up in this last chapter talking about love, talking about leaders, talking about legalism, and then he's going to leave us with promises that will help us. And so look again in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. I think I understand why religion is so important to so many people. You know, I grew up in a religious tradition where many of my family and friends went through the ritual of religious observances, but their heart was never changed. Religious observance is easy. Brotherly love is hard. As tiring and as frustrating as bowing and kneeling and praying and reciting prayers and lighting candles. All of that is really, really easy compared to actually loving each other. Loving each other is hard. It's hard work. And so when the writer says, let brotherly love continue... The implication is that you began your Christian walk and you're continuing your Christian walk. Even when he uses the term, let brotherly love continue, the implication is that you've already begun in love and now you're to continue in love. Do you demonstrate love for Christians? The Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And so not only the writer of Hebrews, but John the Apostle basically makes it a point, particularly for the person who asks the question, how do I know I've passed from death to life. How do I know that I've gone from darkness to light? And the argument that they make is because God has become real in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's invaded you on the inside and you have this unspeakable affection for the saints. And lest you get too confused, he uses the term Philadelphia, you know that term, and we're going to talk about it in just a moment. But Philadelphia was a word that was used to describe love for the brethren. The presence of mutual love is the most convincing evidence of the fact that we're saved. And so this should be a problem for each and every person who meets you. 
and doesn't sense the power and the presence of God in your life or the presence of love in your life. And be, let me be clear what I mean by that. Love isn't just a warm, fuzzy feeling that wells up inside of your stomach or in your heart. It isn't just, you know, sweaty palms and your hair standing on in and that's not what he's talking about. Love in the Bible is a willingness to do what's right towards someone else. Love isn't defined emotionally in the Bible, but rather it's defined relationally and by what you actually do. The writer presumes the reader has already embraced this kind of love, experienced this kind of love. There's a reason why William Penn and his hearty band of Christ followers adopted the new name Philadelphia. William Penn was owed a debt by the king of England. Actually, it was owed to his father. And the king of England paid the debt by ceding the territory that was to become Pennsylvania. And Philadelphia was the city that he founded. And he founded it as a haven of rest for those who had been bitterly persecuted for their faith in Christ, in Europe, and he creates a community. And in that community, he says, this is the place where Christians will be safe to love God and to love each other. We're hard-pressed to continue in brotherly love if our mutual love has never really begun. And so the book of Hebrews has given us a list of let and let us. Let us go on, he said in chapter 6, verse 1. Let us draw near in chapter 10, verse 11. Let us consider each other in chapter 10, verse 24. Let us have grace, chapter 12, verse 28. Let us go forth unto him, he'll say in chapter 13, verse 13. There is this prompting, this urging, this sense in which the writer of Hebrews is urging the, the Christian to really live the life and to continue in love. And how do we do that exactly? How do we continue in brotherly love? I think that the way that we answer that question is we remind ourselves what is the source for love? We know that it's God himself in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I'm reasonably certain that most of you know that passage by heart. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who's born of God knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Note what it says. It doesn't say love is God. It says God is love. You know, this is going to be important because if God is the source of love, if love defined according to the Bible is a willingness to do what's right towards an individual in any given circumstance, then we begin to understand it. If God is the source of love, and he is, if Jesus is the measure of love, and he is, if the Holy Spirit is the might of love, and he is, then obedience provides love's credentials. Obedience provides love's credentials. Because if a person says, in their mind, I think I love these people, or in their heart, they say, I don't think I feel anything towards these people. The Bible is reminding us and encouraging us and prompting us that obedience to Christ's commands are our credentials and obedience in what he has instructed to us, we begin to understand something. That if Jesus is our example then we actually are given permission in the Bible to simply, this is going to sound totally simple, but it's true, to simply copy what he says and does and act 
in our expressions towards one another. There's two famous John 3.16s. You know the first one, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But there's another famous John 3.16. It's 1 John 3.16 where we read, by this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so John, as he's expressing what love really means, he basically says, this is the reason why you can know that God really loves you. Not just in some sort of heady theological way, but in reality, in time and space, a real God sends his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you. In an act of sacrifice. And so John the Apostle invites us to sacrifice for each other. Because love is something that you do. It's not something that you just simply believe. It isn't something that you simply feel in your heart. It's something that you actually do. So how do we know about love? According to the Bible, because we know about Christ. How do we know about the love of God and that God is love? It's because we have known and understand who Jesus is and what he's done. He's laid down his life for us. Love that does not do something is probably not love. Can you imagine if God just simply said, you know, in a paternal kind of deity kind of a way, I really have fond feelings for all of you. And there he is in heaven, having all these warm and wonderful feelings about you. But how are you going to know it? How are you going to know it for sure? The Bible says this is how you know it for sure. It's because Jesus came and loved you and died for you. One of the unmistakable marks of the true believer in Christ is love for God's people. This is a reoccurring theme and principle in the Bible. It's found in John chapter 13, verse 35. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, which I've already quoted. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. You can imagine that if the Bible is that committed to the fact that the real expression of love has to be found in how you relate to one another, then we begin to understand something. Christians in the past, Christians in the present, Christians in the future are marked by love. And again, I want you to understand why the writer of Hebrews is saying this and why he's encouraging us and reminding us. Remember what Jesus said, in the world you're going to have tribulation. You're going to experience persecution. Remember what else Jesus said. Jesus said that in this world, you're going to be hated by this world. You're going to be hated by this world. And then he gives the reason. It isn't that they hated you. They hated him first. And so Jesus understands something. That if the world hates you, all the more reason that you need a refuge of affection and acceptance in a like-minded body of believers. You know, for the person who says, I can love God all by myself at home. This is a person who's theologically inconsistent because love by its very nature requires someone to be loved. And in 1 John, when the Bible says God is love, it's one of the most powerful arguments in the whole Bible of the plurality of the persons of the Godhead. If God is love and he's singular in his identity, then how, who, did he, who in fact did he love in eternity past? The Bible says that the Father has always loved the Son. The Bible says that the Father and the Son have always loved the Spirit. The Bible says that the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And so the writer is going to Remind us 
of the need to continue in mutual love in practical ways. So what does the text tell us? We sympathize with those in trial in verse 3. We're hospitable to those who are in need in verse 2. So he's going to put not just explanations, but he's going to put arms and legs and feet on what this means. And, and just in case the person reading where it says continue in, in brotherly love, and they ask the question, well, how do you want us to do that? And in verse two, it says, don't forget to entertain strangers for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. You are not going to get what the text is saying unless you read it in its context, and the context is love. The reference is to Abraham when he was visited by angels in Genesis chapter 18. You'll remember Abraham wasn't the only one in the Old Testament who was visited by angels. Gideon was visited by angels in Judges chapter 6 verse 11. Manoah was visited by angels in Judges chapter 13. So what are we to make of all of this? Don't forget to entertain strangers. What in the world is he saying? And why is he saying, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels? Should we be kind just in case the person might be an angel? Now, you might think, well, yeah. You just never know. You know, you might think of a, a silly illustration. Imagine you meet Bill Gates in the 7-Eleven and you treat him like some nerdy computer geek. You don't realize he's the richest man in the world, but for whatever reason, you take this little, small, frail, older guy with glasses, you open the door for him, he goes into 7-Eleven, he slips on a wet floor, you help him, you rush him to the hospital, you discover he's the richest man in the world, and he decides he's gonna take care of you. And you might go, yeah, that's a good reason to be kind to people. But I don't think that that's the primary meaning. I suspect that the author is making the point that we can't underestimate the supernatural character of kindness. Remember in the ancient world what a stranger was. The Greek word for stranger, by the way, is xenos. Some of you know that word. There's other words that we get from that, like xenophobia. But the word in the Greek language, xenos, had as its fundamental and primary meaning, someone who wasn't like me. And so xenos was a stranger, a stranger to my tribe or to my language or to, to where I grew up or how I grew up. Now, what's interesting in the case of the entertainment by angels in the case of Abraham, in the case of Gideon, in the, in the case of Manoah, all of them experienced God's kindness because they were sensitive and hospitable. Hospitality is difficult for some. And I'm going to suggest to you that hospitality is most difficult, most difficult, most difficult when we're experiencing difficulties ourselves. If you're going through some tragedy or trial or, or difficulty, it's hard to be open and it's hard to be gracious and it's hard to be hospitable. Now again, I want you to just for a moment put yourself back in time and space living in an ancient world, surrounded by people who aren't like you, who, are, who don't speak your language or, or didn't grow up where you came from, and there was constant struggle and constant war and constant difficulty. What if the guest isn't a believer, but what if the guest is a spy? What if someone shows up in need, but they're not there... for good reasons, they're there for nefarious reasons, bad reasons, difficult reasons. They're trying to figure out a way to undermine and make life miserable for us. And it's interesting to me because the writer of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear 
that we as Christians do not act based on fear and suspicion, but based on comfort and love and generosity because of who Jesus is. By the way, now I want you to just think about this for a moment. In most cultures in the world, in most cultures in the world, when you treat a person with respect and you treat a person with kindness and you treat a person with dignity and you treat a person graciously, they're hungry and you give them food, they're thirsty and you give them water, they are without shelter and you give them a place to stay. How does the vast majority of the world respond? In gratitude. In gratitude. Imagine you are kind and generous and comforting and supportive and somebody rewards your kindness and graciousness by killing you. How does the rest of the world view that act? As barbaric, wicked. So here's part of the point that he's making. He's making not only are you to love and continue to love the brethren, but you're to love people who aren't like you, who maybe don't share your beliefs or who don't share your worldview or who don't share your language. And then he goes on and he says in verse 3, remember the prisoners as if you're chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Love causes us to treat each other with kindness and strangers with kindness. Love causes us to remember the prisoners as if we're chained with them, those who are mistreated. Since you're in the body also, what body is he talking about? The body of Christ. Who are these prisoners? I'm going to suggest to you that they're fellow believers. Who are these fellow believers in prison? These are fellow believers in prison who are imprisoned because they honor God and they love the Lord and they're serving the Lord. I've told you about Saeed Abedini, the Calvary pastor from Idaho who goes back to Iran he is born in Iran and raised in Iran and converts from Islam, experiences this wonderful transformation and becomes a Christian and he goes back to Iran in order to provide love and support and to establish hospitals and orphanages. And the Iranian government arrests him and puts him in jail. And at this very moment, this very moment, even as I'm preaching this message and teaching this passage, Saeed Abedini is in an Iranian jail with a simple piece of paper tacked over his cement bed. It's a cross on a piece of paper taped to a wall. And do you know why he's there? Because he loves the Lord. Do you know why he remains there? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I would encourage you to take just his example and think of your brothers and sisters in North Korea. Think of your brothers and sisters in China. Think of your brothers and sisters in Iran. Do you know how many churches there are in Saudi Arabia right at this very moment? Zero. Zero. Because each and every Christian in the Saudi government has to remain absolutely quiet or face not just persecution, not just imprisonment, but possibly death. And why is it when he says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them? The word translated prisoners isn't the normal word, by the way. It's the word desmios. 
It's an interesting word in the, in the language. It comes from a, a verb, deo, which means to bind. And so here it means a person who's been bound or a person who's tied up. And I'm going to suggest to you again that many Jewish Christians and many Gentile Christians would find themselves in Roman prisons and provincial prisons. They would find themselves in prisons all over the Roman Empire. And they're there in the prisons because they're believers in Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, identify with them. Identify with them in their pain and identify with them in their imprisonment. Understand that as they're experiencing hardship and suffering and persecution, identify with them and pray with them and encourage them. And this is why we do stuff like we do here. Not only do we try and raise awareness and, and provide support and encouragement to his wife, we think about the persecuted Christians who are everywhere. And if you want to know more about that, you should make it a matter of study. Think about what we're doing even as a church with prison fellowship and operation Angel Tree. We think about the prisoners and we think about the children who are left behind and then we figure out a way to love them and bless them and minister to them. Remember, all of this is in the context of love, finding a way, an expression of grace and mercy. It even extends to the very fourth verse when it says marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Why does he insert this? Remember what I said to you earlier. They're talking about love. Loving strangers. Loving each other. Loving prisoners. Loving our spouse. You see, again, we don't take the passage and rest it from the context. We put it in its context and we think, what has gone on before and what are we thinking about? And what is the logical order as he's making reference to everything that he's saying? The moment that he says marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, he's making a warning about the proper expression of love in the God-ordained institution of marriage. The, the New American Standard translates this, let marriages or let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled or the NIV says marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure we sometimes say love begins in the home and I think that that's true but according to the text Love begins in our relationship with Jesus. Love continues in our relationship with each other. Love further continues in our love for strangers. Love further continues in marriage. Who invented marriage? Go ahead, pretend it's a Pentecostal church and you can talk to me. God invented marriage. God invented marriage. When did God invent marriage? In the Garden of Eden. He creates Adam. It says, therefore, and then he creates Eve, and a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to the woman. God invents marriage. And I, again, I want you to think about this. He invents marriage in the Garden prior to the fall. God invents marriage in the garden prior to the fall and marriage is holy. Marriage is honorable. Marriage is lawful for everyone who enters into it lawfully with true affection. Marriage is presided in the beginning by God as the first priest and as the first guest and as the first witness. It is and was a covenant between one man and one woman. And God honors marriage. And many in the early church, I, I, again, I want you to think about it in the context. In the early church, some people wrongly thought that celibacy was superior to marriage. 
They thought if you really want to honor God, if you really want to be a holy person, if you really want your life to count for God, then by all means, you should ditch marriage and you should just forget about marriage. But that's not the Bible's position. The Bible's position is that marriage is invented by God and is honorable and sexual activity in marriage is pure. Sexual expression outside of marriage invites judgment. That's the testimony of the scripture. Sexual expression outside of marriage invites judgment, but I'm going to go one step further and say it also delivers the promised judgment. In what way? The text tells us. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. What did you just say? I, I actually read the text. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Wait, wait, wait. What are you saying? The Lord God will judge immoral people. Really? Yes. Believers? Yes. Unbelievers? Yes. You see, this message is almost shocking, even as I'm saying it right now in a culture that basically believes that sexual expression, however it exists, is okay, and that how can a loving God do anything but admire and encourage all expressions of affection? In order to understand the meaning, we actually have to understand what the original writer meant to the original reader when he used these original words. He uses the term fornicators and adulterers. The word fornicator has fallen way out of favor in our culture. Fornication is a word that means every kind of sexual expression outside of marriage. Adultery is sexual expression by a married person towards another person, maybe married, maybe not married. But the idea is that God will judge. God will sometimes judge immediately in the form of physical illness, broken families, ruined lives, mental and emotional distress, a compromised character. The list could go on and on and on. There are repeated warnings in the Bible concerning sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 5.11, but now, Paul writes, I've written to you to, to not keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, when you read the word reviler in the New Testament, think party animal. That's probably a right translation in our culture and society. A reviler is a person who is a party person, who's all about the party, the drunkard, the extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. William MacDonald writes, quote, unless it is pardoned through the blood of Christ, he will judge it in eternal fire, unquote. And I think he's right. Unless it is pardoned through the blood of Christ. And guess what? That's the good news. That's the good news. That's the good news. There is pardon. There is pardon available to each and every person in the person of Jesus Christ who will come to him and who will acknowledge that they've offended God and that what they have done has not pleased God. But if they'll turn from their sin and they'll Turn to him that the Bible promises that there's forgiveness and hope. There's an interesting story about the Reformation Bishop Hugh Latimer. He would eventually become the chaplain and the pastor, if you will, to King Henry VIII. 
Those of you who are familiar with King Henry VIII, you'll remember he had several wives. And he wasn't always happy with each of his wives. And so once he was done with a wife, he would get rid of the wife. And then he would get rid of the, the next wife. And Bishop Hugh Latimer confronted the immoral king. And King Henry didn't much care for the biblical definitions of marriage. And Latimer presented the king with a finely wrapped Bible. And as he wrapped this Bible in silk, he hung an inscription on it that read, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Have a nice day. <laughs> he quotes this passage. The reason why that becomes such an important story is that Hugh Latimer isn't going to survive. He's going to be burned at the stake. Because he was constantly asked the question, who will you submit to? The king? Or the word of God? Hugh Latimer would always say, I will submit to the king as he submits to the king of heaven. I will submit to him in every way as he submits to the king. Fornication, adultery, sexual expression, sexual freedom is absolutely wildly popular in our culture. And to even suggest that it's wrong or to proclaim that it prompts judgment will almost certainly bring instant condemnation in the culture in which we live. It could very well be that in the not too distant future someone will take this video, they will take this tape, and they will play this statement before some court or some judge or some jury and they'll Ask me the question, does the Bible forbid sexual expression outside of marriage? What do you think my answer is going to be? Yes. yes. My answer is going to be yes. By the way, does this passage invite us to hate homosexuals? No. Does the passage invite us to honor marriage according to the culture's definition of marriage. Does the passage invite us to honor marriage according to the revelation and the testimony that God's word gives in and of itself concerning marriage? I think that that's the right answer. And so there's an exhortation that's finally going to be given of what not to love. Look what it says in verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. The emphasis has been on conduct, behavior, true love, true love towards each other, true love towards the stranger, true love towards your spouse, true love towards the prisoner. True love can't be motivated by greed. Covetousness, by the way, is the craving for more. Covetousness, again, is one of those words that has fallen out of favor. Thomas Watson, the Puritan preacher, likened covetousness to dry drunkenness. I like that. This is over 500 years ago. He likened covetousness to a person who, for all intents and purposes, experiences sobriety, but in their mind and in their heart, they wish they were drunk every day. Covetousness is like that. In what way? John Stott writes, covetousness is a self-destructive passion, a craving which is never satisfied, even what, when what has been craved is now possessed. So the word covetousness itself means to want more and more and more of what you already have enough of. That's the fundamental meaning. It's to want more. It's to want more. It's the trap of falling into thinking that if I just have a little bit more, then the emptiness that's inside of me will go away. 
So what is it that we want? What is it that we crave? What is it that we desire? Do we crave acceptance? Do we crave money? What is it that we crave? I'm going to even suggest to you that there's all kinds of things that we can crave, including religion. I want religion. What do you mean by that? You know, darkness and candles and, and uh, an altered state of consciousness. I, I want to feel the goosebumps go up and down my spine. I want to feel a quiver in my liver. But is really, is that, is that really what the Bible is about? And is that really what having a real relationship with God is about? For some, it really is money. They want more of it. But when people want money, what is it really that they want? They want what money can buy. And so when people want whatever it is that they happen to want, it's usually because it extends to them an offer that it will provide something that will meet the needs of the heart, but it always falls short. And so the statement is a warning. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, I want to warn you, take heed, beware of covetousness. He says, be on the lookout for your own heart when it begins to want things that you already have enough of. So again, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Why is covetousness so bad in this context? It's because it breaks fellowship with God. It stalls spiritual growth. Covetousness retards spiritual growth. Covetousness makes it almost impossible for you to love each other and to love the stranger and to love the needy and to love your spouse. Covetousness brings spiritual progress to a sudden soul shaking stop because you want something more than you want holiness. You want happiness or you want health. And by the way, is it wrong for you to want to be happy? Of course not. Is it wrong for you to want to have health? Of course not. What's wrong is when you misplace the singular thing that governs your life and informs every other aspect of your life. So why is covetousness so bad? In the end, because it makes fellowship with God impossible and love impractical and so he gives an explanation in part of God's love look at the end of verse 5 and verse 6 it says be content with such things as you have for he himself has said I'll never leave you or forsake you but now I want you to connect the dots just for a moment what is the relationship between love contentment and the presence of God God's love is made manifest in God's provision, God's protection, God's presence. These are all love words. Contentment, presence, protection. When the writer says, be content with such things as you have, the solution to the problem of greed, the solution to the problem of covetousness is contentment. That's what he's offering. How do I make the covetousness go away? How do I cause the thirst for whatever it is that I think I desire to go away? And the writer says contentment. You know, I read an interesting story of a group of people in Alaska and the way they would catch wolves. You know, in the Arctic frost, in order to catch the wolf, what they would do is they would take a blade, a spear point or a knife, and in the frozen cold, they would take blood and they would 
stick it to the knife to make sort of like a blood sickle. And the wolves would come and they would lick the blood and they would lick the blood and they would lick the blood. And as they're licking the blood, it gets feverish. The blood starts to melt like a blood sickle. And pretty soon their tongue itself is, is, is frozen solid. And so that when they get past the blood, now they lick the edge of the knife and the wolf begins to bleed in their own tongue. And then they wind up swallowing their own blood and dying. This is the perfect picture of covetousness in your life. You want more and you want more and you want more and you never realize that it's going to kill you. And so the writer says, be content. Be content is easy to say, but it's hard to practice, isn't it? Again, remember the context. Covetousness makes a false promise. If I just had more, I could be happy. Benjamin Franklin said, who is rich? He that is content. Who is that? Nobody. But Franklin was wrong. There are those who read the words, godliness with contentment is great gain. And the moment you read it, and then you consider that it might be true, the moment you believe it, then there's a liberation that begins to take place. Even Martin Luther said, next to faith, this is the highest art, to be content with the calling which God has placed on us. I haven't learned it yet. That was Martin Luther's testimony. His humble testimony was, next to faith, Contentment is the highest art. And he himself conceded and admitted. He says, I'm in that school. Steve Brown used to say, a little is a lot if it's enough. I like that. Sounds like something my grandma would say. A little is a lot if it's enough. John Piper said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And that is the secret of contentment. You know, again, the writer's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 6 through 8, where it says, Be strong and of good courage. Don't be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he's the one who goes with you. He won't leave you nor forsake you. And so when the Lord says, I will not leave you nor forsake you, what's interesting in the Hebrew language, in the Old Testament where it's quoted, the phrase is emphatic. It's as if the Lord is saying, there is no way, there's not a single way, there's absolutely no way that I'll ever leave you. That should cause hope to well up inside of you particularly for the person who's arguing with himself or herself about all of the reasons why God should leave them alone. He quotes another scripture. He says in verse 6, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I won't fear. What can man do to me? The writer's quoting Psalm 118 verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? In the psalm, the writer's extolling and declaring what's called the loving kindness, the hesed of the Lord. And so when the writer of Hebrews says, so we may boldly say, it's interesting to me because it's not the usual word for boldness. It's a word that carries the meaning of a confidence that's completely informed by courage. It would be like if your mother or your father said, come in, don't let anyone stop you. And other people are trying to give reasons why you can't go. Why is all of this important? What do we have in Christ? That's what he's saying. Remember what's at risk and what's at stake. I'm giving up everything for Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says, no, you're getting everything in Jesus. There's nothing that you've lost. 
in comparison to what you've gained. We have perfect security. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Think about what you have in Jesus. Perfect security. Perfect protection. Perfect peace. What can we add? Every single promise of God in Christ. What is our wealth? Jesus. Where is our wealth? In Jesus. I want you to think about this. We possess the one who possesses all. We possess the one who possesses all. No wonder Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 19. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The passage is becoming fierce in its insistence on what you are to do in light of everything that you've just read. So what's the text telling us? Number one, continue in love for the brethren. How do you do that? By reminding yourself that the source of love is God and that the definition of love is a willingness to do what's right. He says, continue in love for the brethren. Number two, be kind to strangers. When someone doesn't look like you or talk like you or act like you or even believe like you, show them respect. Show them kindness. Be gracious to people who are in need. And number three, care and compassion for prisoners and those who are being mistreated. And number four, honor marriage. Love your husband. Love your wife. Honor marriage according to God's word. Number five, cultivate contentment. Why? Because it's the one thing that will keep the wolf away from the popsicle. And number six, have confidence in the Lord Jesus. Have confidence in Jesus. He will give you help. He will provide his presence. He will provide his protection. And when you're tempted to think of everything that you've lost, remember everything that you've gained. We're going to have communion. All I ask you to do is just hold the elements until we all have a chance to partake together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, when we see these encouragements and instructions, there's a whole lot more practical things that we could say. But Lord, I pray that we would at least begin here in simplicity and humility, that we would think carefully about what the writer of Hebrews is saying and saying, Lord, I know you told me to continue in love. Help me understand what that means. Lord, I know you told me to be kind to the strangers. Help me understand what that means. Lord, you've asked me to express affection, kindness, be tender-hearted, be sensitive and submissive, reminding ourselves of people who are in horrible situations and who are being gravely mistreated that, Lord, I, I would identify with them for the very simple reason that Jesus identifies with them. Lord, we know that you're close to those who are brokenhearted, to those who are crushed in spirit. Lord, and for the person who's brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, it feels like you're a million miles away. But Lord, I pray that that person, that man, that woman could hold on and say, I know
I know that you're close by. I know that you want to give me strength and comfort so that I can go forward in grace and mercy. And Lord, again, we pray that even as now as we remember the Lord's Supper and and we bring to mind the basis on which we can experience friendship, relationship, love, and a future, it's because of the sacrifice of Jesus. The greatest proof possible that you love us. And so we commit this time to you, Lord. Prepare our hearts. Speak to our hearts. Address those issues that you want to address. Prepare our hearts so that we can receive you. In Jesus' name.